Hello, and welcome to Doc Tell Me More, my podcast where I take an in-depth look at documentaries. My name is Mike, I am your host, and this is episode 59 of Doc Tell Me More. And again, as always, whether it's your first time or 59th time, I thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this. I'm recording it from a little bit different spot than I've have had have had have done before. So hopefully the audio sounds good, but if it's a little bit off, uh, just uh, couldn't record it in my normal two spots. Um, so ho- hopefully it, it still works for you, but if it's a little wonky, I apologize. I don't really anticipate recording here that often, just kind of how it goes. And I want to get this podcast recorded. Um, yeah, so if you, again, if you don't know what Doc Tell Me More is, I like to describe Doc Tell Me More at the beginning of every episode. But Doc Tell Me More is my podcast where I watch a documentary and we spend some time discussing the episode, going more in depth, um, what was not talked about or what was talked about to a deeper level. Um, A lot of my podcasts pretty much fall into sports or history topics because those are my favorite interests. And since it's my podcast, um, that's what I do. (laughs) So... Um, right now, uh, we are in the middle of a podcast on the War of 1812, which is a PBS uh, documentary that I watched on the War of 1812. Um, I anticipate this being about a four-parter um, on this on the War of 1812. This would be the second part of the War of 1812. So if you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to watch that first and then come back and listen to part two. And that um, first episode, The War of 1812, was actually one of my more recently um, highest listened to episodes. Um, I really just thank you and appreciate those of you that have decided to um, jump on and listen to me. Um, I, I, I cannot tell you how humbling that is. This is just a passion project of mine. I don't make any money off it. Although every time I say that on this episode, if somebody's listening and wants to pay me, I'll do it. No one seems to take me up on that offer, but that's fine. I'm just uh, blessed and honored that you guys are taking time out of your day to listen to my podcast. So pretty excited for that. And then I'm pretty excited to jump in here and part two of the War of 1812. Um, if you are new here, uh, I encourage you to watch the documentary um, before listening to these episodes. Again, this is the PBS documentary titled The War of 1812. But if you haven't listened to it or watched that do- documentary, no sweat. Uh, you'll still be fine and still learn a lot. Uh, I am on Mastodon for social media. So you can follow me at DocTellMeMore at Mastodon.world. Follow me. I will follow you back. Just kind of some different musings about episodes that I record and just or just other sports and history related topics. All right. That was kind of a long intro. Um, So let's uh, jump right into it. Uh, Again, thank you so much for listening to the first episode and let's jump right into episode two here of the war of 1812. So in the first episode, I really talked about the prelude to the war um, and what caused the United States and Great Britain and the native tribes to get embroiled in this war. Um, In this episode, we're going to really just look at the year 1812 uh, and the different campaigns and battles that happened there. Um, Next episode, I'll talk about 1813, and then the last one, 1814, the conclusion. So yes, the War of 1812 spanned more than just the year 1812. I always find that humorous. Again, a lot of my source material comes from uh, the historian Donald Hickey, who is considered the guru of the War of 1812. Uh, he's He's written kind of the seminal book on the topic called The War of 1812, A Forgotten Conflict. He also just wrote a book called Tecumseh's War, which I read, which um, kind of Tecumseh's War, who I have talked about in the first episode, that war kind of overlaps with the War of 1812. Um, But he's just kind of the main source for all of my um, information here. So I encourage you to go give him um, a look at. So as we get into talking about the different strategies here, I wanted to highlight a couple people I am going to be talking about on um, both sides of the of the war here with the, with the U.S., the, the British, and, and the natives. Um, that way, when I mention their names, 
you kind of know who I'm talking about. And so first I want to talk about uh, the United States and a handful of their leaders at the beginning of the war that are going to be involved in some battles. The first one is William Hull for the U.S. Uh, at the time of the war, he breaking out, he was the 59-year-old governor of Michigan Territory. And he was given command of uh, part of the U.S. troops um, in, in the war. Now, he had some really strong experience in the Revolutionary War. Um, but he had suffered a stroke and had some other health issues. So he was getting really up there in age and really, really question, some questions on whether he could really be in command at his age. He actually did not want the command, um, which you always love in your leaders that they don't want to command. Um, but there's really no one else with his experience or cachet. And so he was essentially really encouraged and, and then agreed to take command for the U.S. Another... Uh, important officer for the United States is Henry Dearborn. He was another Revolutionary War veteran. Uh, he was present at the British surrender at Yorktown, one of the major battles in the Revolutionary War. And he also served as Secretary of War under Jefferson. He was given command of the northeastern sector from the Niagara River um, to New England. Um, just like Hull, who Hull, I talked about, was, um, was an officer. He was given command in the West. Um, but Dearborn was also older. He was 61. He was overweight and recovering from injuries. So you can kind of see here how things might go here as the U.S. is leaning on a couple aging soldiers to lead the war. Andrew Jackson was another uh, uh, important American commander. You've probably heard of him. Now, Andrew Jackson was uh, a courier in the Revolutionary War, when he was just 13 years old, he was actually slashed by a British officer for refusing to polish his boots and taken to a POW camp with his brother. His brother would actually end up dying um, just days after being released. And Jackson's mom contracted cholera um, and died um, while she was volunteering as a nurse. And so he was orphaned at the age of 14 and really developed a deep, hatred for the British that and that attitude would continue to manifest himself here in the war of 1812. He became major general in the Tennessee militia in 1802 um, and offered his services when the war broke out. He um, he's a guy that we're going to see here later on talking about the war of 1812. So he's a major general with the Tennessee militia here. William Henry Harrison Another person you've probably heard of before. Uh, maybe you haven't. Uh, he was the Indiana Territorial Governor. He fought in what was called the Northwest Indian War in the late 1700s. I don't really have time to talk about that war in depth, but that was um, fought between the U.S. and the different tribes in what was called the Northwest, which is a lot in the area of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan which is funny, that's the Northwest, but back then it was. Um, and he participated in that decisive battle called the Battle of Fallen Timbers, where the U.S. won and essentially forced different Native tribes to cede their lands to them. Now, Harrison was tasked with getting the Natives to sign those treaties, which gave up their land. And in response, many Natives despised him, including Tecumseh. Uh, I mentioned in the last episode that the Battle of Tippecanoe he, which was preceded the War of 1812, he defeated a group of natives led by Tecumseh's brother, the prophet. But Harrison was considered an enemy of the natives. And he would end up playing a prominent role in this war. Um, so you got two guys, William Henry Harrison and uh, Andrew Jackson, that will eventually play prominent roles for the U.S. A couple co commanders for uh, the U.K., uh, uh, in Canada, which at the time was called British North America, you have George Prevost, who he had served in the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars. At the time, at the beginning of the War of 1812, um, he served as Governor General and Military Commander-in-Chief of British North America, which is pretty much Canada now. It was even called Canada, or, or people were called Canadians even back then. Uh, and his focus was on defending Canada from U.S. attacks. And the second British commander I want to talk about is Isaac Brock. 
He was a major general and responsible for defending Upper Canada. Uh, again, I talked about last... Never mind. Sorry. I get a little bit ahead of myself. I apologize. Uh, Brock, at the time of the war, um, he kind of saw that war was going to come. And he really began to prepare the army and militia for the war to begin. And it put them in a great spot when the war actually broke out for him to take advantage of the situation and, and take offensive action. Now, he really collaborated with Tecumseh, uh, uh, one of the Native American warriors, a Shawnee warrior, who I mentioned last episode. And they would really collaborate together um, to ally against the uh, United States. So you had the United States and you had the British. And as I mentioned last episode, really the, the third um, combatant was the native tribes in the U.S. and Canada. And so the real interesting thing about this War of 1812 is that the natives um, tribes um, served on both sides. You had some that supported Great Britain and Canada. And you had some that supported the United States. And which, again, that makes that really in, the war interesting. Now, some of the tribes were pro-U.S. because they had always been at peace with the U.S. since the inception of the United States. Um, some had also been enemies initially, but after having been defeated in earlier Indian wars, or native wars, excuse me, like the Northwest Indian War, they made peace with the U.S. and ended up becoming allied with the U.S. and just remained allied with them. Some tribes saw the U.S. as the eventual winner, that they were going to conquer the continent. Uh, and uh, they might as well ally with themselves with the winner than rather being on the losing side. Um, many tribes were opportunistic and they knew that if they were on the losing side, they would lose much territory. They hoped that being on the winning side, they could keep their lands in their way of life. Now, there are also many tribes that were pro-British because of the fact that they saw the U.S. had taken a lot of their lands over the previous decades. They saw the British as the country, maybe the only country that could defeat the U.S. and hopefully get their land back. Great Britain was typically friendlier with the natives. They had a lot more of a desire to keep trade with them. Uh, like the different fur trades and whatnot, as opposed to taking their land. And so they fought for it with the British for a British victory to get their land back. Again, as I had mentioned earlier in this episode and last episode, one of the most prominent native leaders was Tecumseh, who was a Shawnee warrior. He wasn't the only one, but he's probably even to this day the most well-known. Now, prior to the war, he had tried to create a confederacy um, amongst many different tribes, to collaborate together to um, create a, again, a confederacy that would protect themselves against U.S. encroachment. His confederacy that he hoped to span uh, would take up much of the Great Lakes and even some of the South. But as he went South, um, excuse me, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself again, I apologize. So he tried to create this confederacy that would span where the current states and the Great Lakes and also even as far down south as Georgia. Um, He was really ahead of his time uh, because he really saw that the only way for the native tribes to defeat the U.S. was to ally together and not be fragmented into their own little nations. Um, Unfortunately for him, not every tribe thought that way. So again, he allied with the British and hoped that a British victory would allow them to retake their lands. So those are some of the main combatants as we get into the different campaigns and the battles of the war. Again, you had the U.S., you had the British, and you had the native tribes. Again, some fought with the U.S., some fought with Great Britain. So going into 1812, uh, thinking from the United States perspective, and honestly, a lot of my perspective might be from that side, fair or unfair. Um, Donald Hickey I think probably takes that perspective a little bit. Uh, Me being an American, um, I'm probably going to think that way, but I'm trying to be fair. I'm not trying to um, favor one side or the other. So if you feel like I'm a little bit biased towards this perspective, I apologize. Um, Not trying to necessarily do that, but it might come out that way. So anyways, going into uh, 
1812 campaign beginning this war. Uh, from a U.S. perspective, conquering Canada wasn't necessarily the goal of the war, but as uh, Henry Congressman Henry Clay said, it was a means to an end. So the thought process was that the U.S. could capture a large portion of Canada or all of Canada. They would essentially have a bargaining chip that they could use to maybe end the war and, and get Britain to acquiesce to whatever they wanted. And that really kind of made sense. Um, there At the time, there were 7.5 million people that lived in the U.S. compared to just 500,000 in Canada. The U.S. had 12,000 people in their army, while Canada only had 7,000. So big numbers advantage for the U.S. Now, Canada at its time, if you need you to remember, was not its own country. It was part of British North America, and it was split into two parts called Upper and Lower Canada. Now, Upper Canada included all of modern southern, southern Ontario and parts of northern Ontario. It is essentially the area right about where the Great Lakes are at. Now, it is called Upper Canada because it is referring uh, to the area above the headwaters of the St. Lawrence River. As opposed to Lower Canada, which is modern-day southern Quebec in the current Labrador region of uh, New Finland. Um, another way to think about that is it essentially encompassed the area above New York, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. The lower part refers to it being further downriver of the St. Lawrence River. But if you look at a map right now, if you went and Googled Upper and Lower Canada and looked at a map from that time, Upper Canada actually looks lower or further south than Lower Canada. Lower Canada looks further north, but really the upper and lower part just re refers to the area in relation to the St. Lawrence River. I was super confused the first time I looked at it and couldn't understand why it was Upper and Lower Canada, but that's why. The more you know. Now, what's interesting about Canada is, is two-thirds of Lower Canada were from French ancestry because a lot of Canada had actually been part of France um, prior to the French and Indian War. So a lot of French ancestry there. While one-third of Upper Canada was American actually by birth. And because of this, the U.S. thought when they invaded Canada that the inhabitants of Canada would rise up against them because they either had American ancestry or French ancestry, not British ancestry. Thomas Jefferson infamously claimed that conquering Canada would be a mere matter of marching. The Democratic Republicans, again that is the party in power, also called Republicans, they expected an easy short war, i.e. a quick conquest of Canada um, would cause Britain to sue for peace. What I found interesting in general, uh, researching different wars, uh, the, the War of 1812, the Civil War, even the World War One, people always think wars are going to be short. And I just laugh at that. Like, no matter what war, it's, hey, it's going to be quick. Or the same thing as I think about when I was in high school, when the U.S. went into the, uh, the second Iraq War. Uh, it's going to be a quick war, yet every war always lasts long. You would think people would learn that, hey, maybe war is not going to be so quick. But that's a different story. Now, the Federalists, the, the party out of power, um, really opposed conquering Canada because Canada was what is not what the U.S. had grievances with. They had grievances with Britain um, and the infringement of their maritime rights. And so the Federalists... They really preferred to fight with Britain at this, on seas and not land because their issues were with the sea. They didn't have any problems with the Canadian people. So again, this was a, a war that was really divided in terms of support back home. Uh, from the U.S., uh, the state of the U.S. war effort was not strong. The departments were very unorganized. Um, Secretary of War William Eustis constantly undermined his chain of command. A lot of the U.S. officers were old and owed their appointments to politics. Many U.S. officers were actually incompetent or drunkards. Now, there was a lot of really talented junior officers who would rise up and help turn the tide for the U.S., but with the seniority system, uh, 
the older incompetent officers were in charge. Most enlisted men as well were inexperienced and desertion was high. It was not a well-trained army. It was not the army that had won the American Revolution. And the militia that fought with the regular army was not dependable. Uh, The standard musket which was used in the war had an effective range was 100 yards and misfired 15% of the time. The musket given was so inaccurate that most soldiers used their own guns. That's actually another theme of wars that the U.S. fights in down the road. A lot of their initial weaponry is pretty terrible. So, U.S. strategy, like I said, conquer Canada. Um, But they had a really inexperienced army. Now, the first land battle, or legit land battle of the war, was at a place called... Fort Mackinac. Uh, now, now, when the war was declared, which I talked about last episode, Great Britain was a lot better at getting communication to their outpost at the war compared to the United States. As soon as war broke out, Isaac Brock had sent orders to one of his captains to take uh, the F- Fort Mackinac. Um, and that was on an island between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan, present-day Michigan. Uh, there, this captain, Captain Charles Roberts, had 600 soldiers with him, which included regulars, fur traders, and natives. The U.S. fort um, only had 61. The British quietly surrounded the fort, shot a round of cannon at it, and then demanded its surrender. Porter Hanks, the commander of the U.S. fort, was not even aware that war had broken out. And he surrendered because he feared a massacre by the native tribes. And this was an ongoing theme. A lot of the U.S. people and soldiers feared, um, greatly feared native tribes. They certainly had experienced different uh, attacks by natives before in the West. And there was a great fear that if they were um, attacked by natives and surrendered to the natives that they would not live. And so the Brit- Britain really played on that anytime they went to surround or force uh, a group to surrender. And so, so Porter Hanks, he surrendered. Uh, the soldiers, the U.S. soldiers were paroled and told they could go home as long as they promised not to fight for the rest of the war, which actually, you know, that kind of sounds crazy. The, hey, just promise not to fight again. And you could just leave and go home, and then you could probably re-enlist and no one would know. But actually, a lot of people followed those rules of war. They promised not to fight, and they didn't fight. Um, so that was the first land battle of the war, and it really came down to the fact that Great Britain was way more prepared and told and, and warned their troops that war broke out, and the U.S. was not prepared. So I, I had talked about Again, the U.S.'s plan was to conquer Canada, and this really um, developed into a three-pronged attack plan to conquer Canada, and we're going to really talk about that here. And so the U.S. plan to conquer Canada um, involved attacking Montreal in Canada, the Niagara frontier, and the Detroit frontier. And the hope was that if they had the U.S. had these three different campaigns going up toward Canada, they captured each of those points, then Canada would fall. Sounds like a decent plan. I guess I don't really know that I'm not in the military, but on paper, to me, it sounds like a good plan. However, um, for various reasons, um, the West ended up... Um, gaining part of get, started to gain greater resources. So when I talk about the re, the West, um, you're looking at the West was considered like Illinois, even Michigan, um, uh, that area which was not Canada. There was a greater war enthusiasm there in the West, and so because of that, there's actually a lot of resources that were sent west for the U.S. to fight the war as opposed to being sent up into this three-pronged attack to attack Canada. So the U.S. develops this plan to attack Canada. 
and then immediately um, undermines that plan by shifting resources out west. Um, so their plan to conquer Canada is off to a poor start. So the first prong of the U.S. attack, I'm going to say prong a lot in this podcast episode, which I don't know if I've said prong before in any of my 58 episodes, but um, it is what it is. It's a cool word. Anyways, the western part of the attack into Canada was um, the, the, the Detroit frontier. Um, and so this was called really the, the Siege of Detroit is what we're going to talk about here in the furthest western prong. So General Hull, who I had talked about, he was ordered to proceed to Fort Detroit. And as he was on his way to this fort to reinforce it and prepare it for war, he sent his papers ahead on a boat to meet him there, which was promptly intercepted by the British, who then were able to discern his strength and plans. So again, <laughs> just incompetency by the Americans. Hull ended up making it to Detroit on July 5th, where he then crossed into Canada and where he was supposed to attack the Canadian frontier and push into Canada. Um, there was a couple skirmishes they had, which he ended up being defeated. And then after he heard about the U.S. surrender at Mackinac, he decided to retreat back to Detroit, which had a demoralizing effect on his army. He actually wanted to retreat all the way back completely into Ohio. But his officers talked him out of it. This, as I said, had a really demoralizing effect because it essentially stopped that western prong attack into Canada. And a lot of Hull's men lost faith in him. One called him a coward. And there was even talk of removing him, but nothing came of it. British um, commander Isaac Barak decided to take this opportunity to attack uh, Detroit. The British created a letter that they allowed to fall into American hands that said there are 5,000 natives near Detroit. Again, playing on the American fear of Native Americans. Barack also had his soldiers light multiple campfires as they were outside Detroit to make it look like their army was larger than it was, and he repeatedly marched his army around the same area to look like it was larger than it was. In reality, instead of having 5,000 Native Americans with him, he only had 600 natives, as well as 300 regulars and 400 militias. So you're looking at maybe 1,500 troops, and the U.S. thought it was 5,000 or more. So on August 15, 1812, the British and Native force began bombarding Fort Detroit. Um, Brock advanced against the port, the fort, not the port. During this bombardment, Porter Hanks, who again I just talked about, he had surrendered Fort Mackinac. He was there. He was awaiting his court-martial in the fort. He ended up being killed by an exploding shell. This bombardment really unnerved Hull, and instead of trying to command his troops, he ended up spending most of his time huddled in fear um, in the corner and was just chewing tobacco relentlessly, so much that spilled all over his shirt. Being fearful of an what he called a, quote, Indian massacre, he surrendered the fort against the wishes of his officers. Despite his fear of being severely outnumbered, he actually outnumbered Brock two and the natives two to one. All in all, there were only seven soldiers killed for the U.S. and two British wounded. But he, the U.S. could have clearly probably held on and, and fought and maybe even won the battle. But his poor leadership ended up causing Detroit, yes, that Detroit, Detroit, Michigan, to be surrendered. Victor was a huge morale boost for Britain and Canada and also convinced many natives to join the British side of the war, even some of those who had been neutral who had sided with the U.S. Hull ended up being court-martialed and actually sentenced to death for surrendering Detroit. But his sentence was commuted to just dismissal by President Madison for his Revolutionary War service. And um, not a great ending for William Hull. So the Western Prong was a disaster for the U.S., Great Britain actually captures the um, Detroit from the U.S. So let's look at the other two prongs here. The middle prong, the Niagara prong. Um, and that leads us to the Battle of Queenston Heights, which is considered the first, uh, when I looked it up, it was considered the first major battle 
of the war, which I just find that hilarious because there are multiple battles beforehand. And uh, I'm just kind of like, well, what does that mean? Major? What does it take to become a major battle? But that is what historians say. Um, so Queenston Heights, uh, the battle of Queenston Heights, this happened in October. Now, Major General Isaac Brock, again, his name comes up. Um, he was in charge of, again, military forces in Upper Canada. I'd mentioned that. And he was now called the savior of um, Upper Canada after his capture of Detroit. After De Detroit, Brock planned on crossing the Niagara and, all, and go over and occupy New York State. This ended up being vetoed by George Prevost. Um, who hoped that there could still be some peaceful negotiations so the war wouldn't last a whole lot longer. Now, Major General Stephen von uh, Rensselaer, excuse me, he was in charge of the U.S. soldiers in the area. Uh, he planned on crossing the Niagara River because um, he wanted to take Queenston, Ontario. The British were actually tipped um, tipped off to this. And I guess before I get into Queenston, you're probably wondering some geography here. Like I said, Queenston is in Ontario. And there is a Niagara uh, River there. Uh, Queenston is, is right near, essentially, New York. Uh, right across the river is Lewiston. Um Think about kind of where Buffalo, New York is at and just go a little while north. So you're looking at kind of uh, western New York and eastern um, Ontario there. Um, Detroit, for reference, is kind of on the western side, far western side of Lake Erie, while Queenston Heights in this area we're talking about for this battle is kind of the far eastern side of Lake Erie. So, um, the U.S. were hoping to cross the Niagara River to take Queenston, Ontario. The British were tipped off of, it, of a potential attack, though, when they attempted to have a prisoner exchange on October 12th. And the Americans told them that they couldn't do an exchange until the day after tomorrow, which the British thought that was a very unusual uh, wording. And so they assumed the day after tomorrow meant that the next day... <laughs> battle was going to happen. And sure enough, on the next day, early in the morning, uh, Americans crossed the Niagara River in 13 boats in an attempt to take Queenston. They were discovered and hit with a uh, pretty blistering fire by the British. Um, Captain John Wool led an attack on Queenston Heights, which was lightly defended, and he broke through the British lines. Isaac Brock, the savior of Upper Canada, initiated a charge to recapture what had been lost, but Brock was shot in the chest and killed. The Americans were able to take the heights, and Van Rensselaer ordered it to be fortified, and Lieutenant Colonel Winfield Scott was given command of the regulars here at this place called Queenston Heights. So things are looking really good for the Americans. They've, they've crossed the river, they've occupied a beachhead, they've killed the great Isaac Brock, now they can really maybe push inland and take Queenston. However, of the 3,000 men the U.S. had, only 1,000 of them had crossed the Niagara. Then Rensselaer crossed back over the river to get more troops, but he was unable to do so. Militia refused to cross the international border from U.S. to Canada. Um, he sent, then sent word across the river to his commanding officers, which was Winfield Scott and General Wadsworth that they could determine whether they should keep fighting or retreat. Of course, I found it interesting that Van Rensselaer didn't go back across the river. He's like, hey, uh, things aren't looking good. You guys figure out what to do next. Now, at this time, British General Roger uh, Chafee began to advance on the heights and uh, kind of rallied the troops and attacked with British regulars, Canadian militia, and some Mohawk warriors. And this attack worked, and the Brit Americans decided to withdraw. Wadsworth and Scott ended up being forced to surrender. Almost a 1,000 Americans were captured to go along with 180 casualties. British and Canadian casualties were only 120. It's a very decisive 
British-Canadian victory, although the death of Isaac Brock was a devastating blow. So, both prongs so far of the U.S. attack has been a failure. The westernmost Detroit prong and the middle Niagara prong through New York State um, were failures. A couple things, John Wall and Winfield Scott, um, those are people I am going to talk about a little bit more. Um, John Wool um, was not part of the group that surrendered. He would serve in the U.S. Army for the next 50 years. He would serve in the War of 1812. He'd become a general in the Mexican-American War and a general in the American Civil War, one of the longest tenured soldiers in U.S. history. So he got his start here in the War of 1812. We might talk about him later. I just wanted to point that out. Winfield Scott is another guy I might talk about later. I actually know I'm going to talk about later, but I just want to point out too, um, he, he kind of his quick story here. He was part of the group that surrendered. He was actually released a month later and promoted to colonel. He would also serve in the next army in the U.S. Army for the next 50 years. And he rose to commanding general of the U.S. Army from 1841 to 1861. He became really famous for capturing Mexico City in the Mexican-American War and when the, and the Duke of Wellington proclaimed him at the time as the greatest living general. Numerous officers served under him that served in the Civil War, including Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant. Winfield Scott would also come up with the Anaconda Plan that would help win the Civil War for the Union. And you can actually make an argument that Winfield Scott's actually the U.S.'s greatest general. All those thoughts are kind of out of the purview of this podcast series. But I just wanted to point out that, what again, what I find interesting with the War of 1812, you had some of the greatest generals in the history of the U.S. served during this war, They got or they got their start in this war. And two of them were Winfield Scott and John Wool, who were present at the American defeat in Queenston Heights. All right, so the first two prongs didn't work. What about the third one? The Montreal prong. So Montreal, if you don't know your geography, that is kind of uh, just north of like New York and Vermont, uh, completely on the opposite side of New York, opposite side of where Queenston Heights was. This was commanded by Henry Dearborn. Um, now, he didn't lose a major battle. That's because he made just a half-hearted attempt at his approach to Montreal. He was defeated at a couple small skirmishes, and then when he went across the border, then he just retreated back. Really poor preparation and organization. So that prong as well petered out. So the three-prong attack to take Canada and force Britain to end the war quickly on U.S. terms failed epically. You had two armies that surrendered, a city that was captured in Detroit, and the only army that wasn't captured or surrendered didn't even try. Poor leadership and poor organization led to this um, disaster. Um, So the major plan of the U.S. um, in this war, uh, being successful in Canada, was an absolute failure. And this cast huge doubts on the U.S. ability to fight this war because it was expected the U.S. would have success on land because they were on their home turf on land in the U.S. and into Canada. And as I said, Canada was lightly defended. And everybody knew the greatest navy in the world was Great Britain. So it was very likely that the U.S. was not going to do well on the seas. And so these disasters on the land were just horrifying for the U.S. So not a good start. So let's talk about the campaign on the seas. So as I said, okay, the U.S. was expected to do well on the land. They got destroyed. The British were expected to do well in the sea. So, despite the fact that Great Britain was called the mistress of the seas and and expected to have the upper hand, there were some factors that worked in the the U.S.'s favor. Part of that was they had experienced sailors from the Quasi-War, which I talked about last episode. And also, Britain's ships were spread all over the world because, again, they were in a war with Napoleon. Their major... um, focus at this time was not defeating the U.S. in a war. It was defeating Napoleon, Napoleon, Napoleon uh, in a war. And they were just trying to keep the U.S. at bay while they tried to defeat Napoleon. So 
One of the first battles that these two countries, the U.S. and Great Britain, fought in the War of 1812 was between the U.S. Constitution and the HMS Guerriere, which happened on August 19th. Now, the Constitution was launched in 1797. It was one of the original six frigates of the U.S. Navy. It did serve in the quasi-war. On this date, both ships um, ran into, not ran into each other, but sighted each other and kind of prepared for battle. The Guerriere fired several shots that helped that uh, were um, short of the Constitution. One cannonball hit the sides and bounced off this ship, again, wooden ship. And then a sailor purportedly said, huzzah, her sides are made of iron. And that gave the ship the name Old Iron Signs. You know, I think we should say the word huzzah more than uh, than we do. That's a pretty cool word. Um, little tangent there. The two ships traded broadsides for a while, and they got close enough where they got locked up together. The crews then actually traded musket fire. The Gurrier's masks fell, and the ship was helpless, so the British surrendered. Uh, ten Americans were actually found on the ship that had been impressed into duty, which, again, was one of the causes of the war. Um, the British ship was unsalvageable, set on fire, and there were 16 killed, 78 wounded, and 257 captured. Um, talking about the British here, captured by the Americans. So, hey, that first battle is actually a major victory for the U.S. And the Constitution would have another great victory just a few months later in December when they ran up against the HMS Java. Very similar battle that the Constitution had with the Java. Um, in the middle of their fighting, uh, the ships again became entangled. I find it hilarious that the two ships just ran into each other, but I guess the wind at this point. Um, the Java's mast collapsed as well. The Java surrendered and the ship had to be scuttled. So the Constitution, two major battles um, on the seas um, for the U.S., uh, which helped restore the morale after some really awful land losses. Now, the Constitution, um, it's a little bit of its history. It would be retired from active service 70 years later in 1881. It actually served as a training ship in the Civil War, and this ship actually still exists today as a museum ship. So you can actually go to the U.S. Constitution now, um, still to this day out east. Pretty cool. And So the Constitution was the only U.S. ship out there having some success. The USS United States, nice original name, fought against a British ship called the Macedonian in October of 1812, and they scored a pretty dominant victory for the United States. She hit the Macedonian and destroyed her top mast, which made her a sitting duck and caused the Macedonian to surrender. 43 were killed by the British and 71 wounded. Unlike the other two battles that the Constitution had, the United States was able to take the Macedonian and bring it back to the U.S., and it was the first British warship ever brought into an American harbor. They renamed it the USS Macedonian, and it served for the U.S. for another 15 years. So, the key wrap-up here of the naval wars is that the U.S. beat the British in three straight naval battles. That was nothing that uh, France had never done that in the previous, or had never done that period. In the previous 25 years, in Great Britain naval history, they had lost just five battles total. The U.S. ended up capturing on the seas or defeating seven ships and lost just three. Um, just a huge morale boost for the U.S., and it actually stunned Britain. Stunned Britain. And one of the great ironies of the War of 1812 in the year 1812 was that the U.S. was supposed to win the, win the battles on the land and be completely outclassed on the seas. And the exact opposite happened. So, uh, those were kind of the major battles of the campaign of the War of 1812. Two quick battles I just want to mention quickly. I'm not going to get in depth, but these are important. I want you to know about so you can look it up if you're interested. Uh, the Battle of Fort Dearborn occurred in August of that year. Also called the Fort Dearborn Massacre, depending upon what side you're on. This is when a group of U.S. soldiers, militia, women, and children were evacuated from Fort Dearborn. They had Miami escorts, Miami tribe escorts. 
Uh, they were trying to march from Fort Dearborn to Fort Wayne. They were ambushed and attacked by a Potawatomi tribe. 52 were killed and 41 were captured. This is called a massacre by some, typically the U.S. side, and called a battle by others, probably if you're on the British native side. Just kind of depends on your point of view. I thought that was interesting. And it's the other battle I want to talk about was the siege of Fort Harrison, which happened in September. You had 50 U.S. soldiers who were guarding Fort Harrison, although only 20 of them were healthy. The rest were sick. They held off a force of 600 native um, warriors. This was considered the first land victory of the war for the U.S. Captain Zachary Taylor commanded the U.S. forces. He would also become famous in the Mexican-American War as a general and then the 12th president of the United States. So I think one of the things I mentioned in my first episode of this series is that there's a ton of famous people in this war for the U.S. that came out of this war. Um, I've already mentioned Zachary Taylor, Winfield Scott, John Wall. Um, I I really want to get, hopefully in my last episode, I kind of plan on maybe going more in depth to these guys, but I just want to mention them now. The War of 1812 is a very obscure war, obscure war in American and British history. From an American side, a lot of famous people came from this war that we don't talk about. So Zachary Taylor, one of them, future president of the United States, first uh, land victory for the U.S. in the war. So kind of in conclusion, as I wrap up here, just talking about the um, battle campaign of the War of 1812. British won the land battles, U.S. the seas. Canada was supposed to be easy to conquer, but it was not. But again, really, as 1812 ended, going into 1813, um, no clear upper hand, though, of who had the upper hand in the war. It's pretty much generally a, a stalemate, despite those surprises. So the last thing I want to talk about here in this episode, as we look at the War of 1812, is the election of 1812. There was actually a presidential election of 1812, which is crazy. You start a war... And in that first year of the war, you have an election. And it was the first presidential election held during a major war for the U.S. You think about the Civil War. Um, Lincoln had, was reelected in 1864, but that was the fourth year of the war. This is the first year of a war. There's a presidential election. Um, and you really have no clue how things are going. And it's, in a lot of respects, things aren't going well for the U.S. But there is a presidential election. So, again, at this time, you think back to what I talked about last episode, you had two major parties at the time. You had the Democratic-Republicans who were in charge. That's the party of Thomas Jefferson. They pretty much controlled everything. They controlled Congress. They controlled the presidency. And you had the Federalist Party, the party of Alexander Hamilton. They were slowly dying. This election ended up being not between a Democratic-Republican nominee and a Federalist nominee ended up being between two Democratic-Republican candidates. Now, the Southern Democratic-Republicans renominated James Madison. So James Madison was currently finishing out his first term as presidency. He was renominated for a second. But the Northern Democratic-Republicans decided to nominate DeWitt Clinton for various reasons. One of those reasons was they wanted to end what was called the Virginia Dynasty, which meant three of the first four presidents had been from Virginia, including Madison, and people thought that it wasn't good to have people elected consistently from the same states. Now, the Federalists, instead of having their own candidate, decided to support Clinton just to get Madison out of office. They didn't explicitly endorse DeWitt Clinton. They just kind of applied like, hey, we want him. We don't want Madison. So two Democratic-Republicans squared off. Now, Clinton campaigned to the whims of each section of the country. He was very contradictory. In parts of the country that were against the war, like the Northeast, he campaigned against the war. In parts of the country that were pro-war, he campaigned for the war. Maybe you could get away with that back then when you know you don't have TVs or radios to really kind of catch people in, in lies. Um, that's what he tried to do. Now, when the results came, Clinton did the best in the North, which made sense. That's a Federalist stronghold. Madison in the South and the West, which made sense. That's a Republican stronghold. The elections hinged on New York and Pennsylvania. Uh, If Clinton could win both those states, he would have won the election. But Clinton did win New York, 
Madison won Pennsylvania and ended up winning the election. The Electoral College is 128 to 89. Popular vote was 50% to 47%. Madison was the first president to be reelected with a lower percentage of the electoral vote. For the longest time, if a president was reelected, they actually got a, a larger share of the vote than their first time. And this was the narrowest popular vote for a victorious reelected president until 2004. So I'll say that again. It was the narrowest popular vote for a victorious reelected president until 2004. And that would be when George W. Bush was reelected. Now, Republicans, though, lost um, some seats in Congress. They went from 75% to 63% of the seats in the House and 82% to 78% in the Senate. Republicans lost control of six states. It was the best Federalist showing since the 1790s. Um, and again, the, the Federalists were the party that was against the war. And so certainly the successes, or not the successes, the failures of the war on land um, got people to really support the Federalist Party um, because of that. Uh, so Madison's reelected, though. Republicans maintain their power, but on, on a narrower scale. Now, something that was interesting to me as I was reading about this. Um, in 1813, Madison's vice president died. And at that time, when a vice president died, they just left it vacant, which is insane. If you look throughout the history of the U.S. in the 1800s and early 1900s, there are many times vice presidents just died and the president served for two three or three years without a vice president, which meant that the president could have died and that would have been a huge constitutional crisis of what to do. Well, in 1813, Madison almost died himself. He got really sick. And there's almost a moment in 1813 um, when uh, the U.S. was in the midst of a war and was almost leaderless without a president and vice president. Now, would have, what would have happened was the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, would have become president. But there would have been the question, is he president? Is he acting president? So this is going to have an interesting what if. Okay. So I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there for this episode. My main part, point of this episode was to talk about the, the campaign of 1812. The war had gone on. Um, the U.S. had a plan to conquer Canada. It was failed by a lot of different things, including incompetent leadership. The British, though, couldn't really strike a blow, uh, kind of a, a kill shot, for lack of a better term, against the U.S., because the U.S. was able to be victorious on the seas. And so as we head into 1813, both sides can claim some victories there. Um, even the native tribes can claim some victories there. But there, there, there's no for sure uh, mo momentum for one side or the other. And the War of 1812 will stretch into the year 1813. So we'll, we'll stop it there. Um, that is my second episode here on the War of 1812. Um, we'll be back in another few weeks with the third part of what I'm planning on is four parts of the War of 1812 documentary. Again, thank you so much for listening. You can find me at Mastodon at doctommemore at mastodon.world. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, we'll talk to you later.